It's been a long run through Revelation. We've seen Jesus revealed in this book to the Apostle John while he was in exile on the island of Patmos. We've seen this revelation as it functions in light of encouraging the church, especially addressed to those believers in Asia Minor and the Roman Empire who were facing significant challenges as they sought to follow Jesus. I mean, the Apostle John was in exile because of his ministry of the Word. It wasn't an easy time or place to be a Christian. But as we've seen throughout the study, what is revealed about what is coming is meant to impact us today. And so we read in Revelation, yes, Jesus will return. But we read about his return that's accompanied by not only the, the salvation and redemption of the church, but also the judgment of the world. The line really is drawn in the sand. There is separation. And so we, we see Jesus returning, and that means judgment for Babylon and all those who have their allegiance with the beast and the dragon And we see, of course, that those who belong to the Lamb are safe. Even if they give their lives for the Lamb, they're safe. And ultimately, they they will be vindicated in the end. As Jesus returns and He renews creation and we enjoy forever with Him on the new earth and the new Jerusalem with resurrected bodies. John Newton, one of my friends from ages past, he wrote uh, about this. And I dropped it on the ground. Here it is. He wrote one hymn about the return of Jesus. The title is, Return, O Lord, How Long? And just listen to the honesty in Newton's lines. He's great for honesty. He says, But ah, since thou hast been away, nothing but trouble have I known. And Satan marks me for his prey, because he sees me left alone. My son is hid, my comfort's lost. My graces droop, my sins revive. Distressed, dismayed, and tempest-tossed, my soul is only just alive. Lord, hear my cry and come again. Put all mine enemies to shame, and let them see tis not in vain that I have trusted in thy name. Maybe this morning you're here and you would say your son is hid, your comfort's lost, your graces droop, your sins revive. Maybe you're here and you're distressed, dismayed, and tempest-tossed, and you feel like you're just barely alive. The book of Revelation is for you. Because it doesn't gloss over the challenges that we face. In fact, it looks those challenges right in the eye and says, yes. There will be very difficult days, but Jesus is coming back. And that's really the focus here of the end of Revelation, and rightly so. As we look at this passage, I think you'll be encouraged this morning, not only to think about the return of Jesus, but to think about how it should affect your life right now, how it impacts you where you're living and where you're struggling today. So let's unpack these verses. We'll start in verse 6, chapter 22. We've had this glorious depiction over chapters 21 and the beginning of 22 of, again, the new restored earth, the new Jerusalem, our eternal home, and all the blessings that accompany that. It will be truly glorious, and it will be glorious forever. Here as the conclusion of the book. We find a lot of themes that, that reflect the, the introduction of the book. And we actually have uh, three parties speaking here in the conclusion. We have the Apostle John, we have the angel who is giving him this part of the vision, and we have Jesus himself. And so we'll see statements from all three of those, uh, of those individuals throughout this section. Watch verse 6. It starts with the angel speaking. 
John writes, then he said to me, that's this mediating angel from the beginning of chapter 21. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. You know, if you just pause there. John's in exile on Patmos. Some of the churches are struggling in, in Asia Minor in the first century, and maybe they're hearing this, this vision read to them, and they're imagining it in their mind, and Jesus coming back and you know, destroying his enemies and judging the world and the church victorious with them and the glories of the new Jerusalem to come, and they're all kind of sitting there going, really? Because it sure doesn't feel like it. You know, it doesn't feel like we're, we're getting closer to that. I mean, right now, I'm struggling And John, you're in exile. And you know what? We're still dealing with bills that have to be paid. We're still dealing with sicknesses. We're still dealing with, with, uh, you know, uncertain diagnoses. We're still dealing with problems in the family and all of that. So really? Is this really coming? Because it sure doesn't feel like it. And so verse 6, in verse 6, the angel just underscores the fact that this message is trustworthy. Why? Because it comes from a trustworthy source. He says, these words are faithful and true. That's the second time we've had that here towards the end of Revelation about these words are faithful and true because God is faithful and true. So the, the reliability of this vision is anchored in the character, of, the character of God. Notice that that's also related to the fact that God speaks his word. In verse 6, the Lord, the God of the, of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Our God is a speaking God. And so the spirits of the prophets, these prophets, uh, we read, of course, in 1 Peter that the the Holy Spirit has carried them along so that they will produce the word of God for us. And so here, you know, the angel says, just so you know, God speaks. And he has spoken in the prophets, yes, and he has spoken here in Revelation. Again, his word is faithful and true. And we are his servants. So for the time being, we wait for the fulfillment of these words. Watch verse 7. Jesus interrupts. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. You see there in verse 7 a refrain that Jesus will repeat three times here in this last section in the conclusion of Revelation. I am coming soon. The time is near. Jesus says, I am coming soon. And notice that in verse 7, when he says that, there's a turn, right? A blessing. We have seven statements of blessing in Revelation. This is number 6. We'll get another one here in verse 14. But notice here he says, Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. When he talks about blessed is the one, he's talking about you know the, this uh, gifting from the Lord. That It's a, a positive a set of circumstances that's gifted to you by God. That's what blessing is. And so he says, blessed is the one who not just hears these words, but who lives in light of them. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So, you know, Jesus says, listen, I'm coming soon. And here's the deal. You don't need to, it's not important for you just to know that that's happening. It's important for you to know that it's happening and live in light of my coming. Again, we're called to be set apart for the second coming because the time is near. So you have to get practical with Revelation. We can't just read this book with curiosity. John then speaks in verse 8. He says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had shown them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. 
I am a fellow servant with you, your brothers, the prophets, and those who keep the words of this book, worship God. Now that might sound familiar to you because John had another faux pas like this called a worship faux pas. Uh, he had one of those in chapter 19, where once again, he, he falls down on his, on his knees to worship the angel. And the angel says, listen, get up. You, listen, if, you're, if you get anything out of this book, it's don't worship me. Don't worship the beast. Don't worship the dragon. Worship God. Brothers and sisters, the time is near. Worship God. Worship is the urgent need of the moment. And that might be counterintuitive because sometimes we don't think of valuing God as like, oh, the central aspect of my life that I really should be worshiping every moment. We might, we might hear that and think, oh, yeah, that sounds right. But Jesus says, I'm, I'm coming back. I'm coming soon. So make sure you keep the words of this book. And John says, when I, when I experienced all this, I fell down the worship of the angel. And the angel's like, get up. I'm a fellow servant with you. Just worship God. That's what you need to be doing. And it's not a mistake that even at the beginning of Revelation, as Jesus is revealed, he's revealed in his glory so that he would be worshipped, valued, so that we would fall, at his, uh, fall on our knees before him and value him more than anything else. And then we've got the letters to the seven churches. And then in chapter 4, as the visionary part of the book really gets going, where does it start? It starts in the heavenly throne room, where what do we see happening? Worshipping God is going on. And so there's this kind of constant refrain through the book, worship God, worship God, which begs the question, are you worshiping God? Are you valuing him? Again, don't worship the beast. Don't worship the dragon. Don't worship an angel. Value God above all else. Pursue God above all else. Be more passionate about God than you are about anyone else. The time is near, and that's how we prepare for the return of Christ. Worship can be a challenge. Worship can be a challenge when the wicked seem to be prospering. We know that was a struggle for the first century church as they saw the wickedness in their culture. And frankly, in our our culture, we're kind of right there, where we can look around, and we don't have to look far to see the wicked prospering. But when the wicked prosper... We could be tempted to jealousy. And here Jesus says, don't be jealous of them, just worship me. We'll be tempted to worship something else when the world mocks us. In fact, we'll be tempted to worship ourselves or worship them. Because man-pleasing says, I want them to approve of me. I want my friends to approve of me. I want my family to approve of me. And, and so I might uh, you know, downplay the gospel and, and behave differently and even participate in sinful activities and speak in sinful ways because I want everybody to like me or to think I'm cool or to accept me. But Jesus says, no, don't worship them, worship me. I'm coming back. It's hard to worship when we face physical trials. We've got a lot of that going around our church right now. Cancer, right? Long-term illnesses. Battles that some of us won't win in the short run. It's hard. And it hurts and we're tired and we're sick of going to the chemo and we're sick of not knowing what's the next step or if it's going to work and, and we're worn out. But even in the midst of the difficulty of facing those physical challenges... Jesus says, I'm coming soon. Worship me. It's hard to worship when we face financial hardships. 
because we can get distracted with discontentment, right? Whether it's greed and just wanting more or whether it's genuine financial hardship and we're really struggling and we don't know where the, the money's going to come from to pay the bills. But even if we're facing financial challenges, can I encourage you this morning? The time is near. Worship God. It's hard to worship when we're enduring emotional hurts. When friends have let us down, when family has turned on us. We might respond with anger, bitterness, sorrow, depression, discouragement. But to those of us facing those kinds of challenges, Jesus says, I'm coming soon. The time is near. Worship God. Don't stop worshiping. Don't stop pursuing me. And maybe, maybe most prominent in the book is the challenge when the church seems irrelevant. I mean, listen, first century Roman Empire, Christianity, especially when John wrote Revelation, was barely tolerated. And in some places it wasn't tolerated. The church was a footnote. It, it, was, it was a minority. Minority numerically and a, certainly a minority in importance. The church didn't have prominence the church didn't have you know, epic representation in the Roman Senate, right? It wasn't like the church was uh, you know, this uh, state-approved religion as it later would be in history in the Roman Empire, but it wasn't at this time. That, you, know, you could be worshiping Jesus with these saints with the two or three or four other families in your small town in Asia Minor. You could be thinking, we are so insignificant. Like There's nothing we can do to impact this broken world. It, seem, it might seem like we're powerless, But to that church, to the church that's a minority in an unbelieving culture, to the church that is losing its influence, if it has any, to that church, Jesus says, it's okay, I'm coming soon, worship God. Worship. You never know what God can do through a country church out in the middle of nowhere in northern New Jersey, right? Let's go. Because God will use us if we're worshiping him. The challenge is daily. Now, you need to ask the question this morning, are you worshiping God or are you worshiping the beast and the dragon? We could substitute other words for the word worship. We could talk about value. We could talk about love. We could talk about uh, passion and pursuit. So what are signs that we might be struggling to worship God? Well, obvious signs would be being uh, participating in sinful activities and tolerating sinful attitudes in your heart, right? So that's kind of, you know, an obvious sign. Okay, I'm struggling to worship the Lord here. Other signs, though, we could look for positive signs that we love God or valuing God or worshiping God. For example, are we growing in our passion for Him? Is there, you know, discernible growth in my life of my love for the Lord? Do I have evidence of transformed attitudes of transformed ways of speaking, of transformed ways of living, where I can look at that and I can say, oh yeah, that's evidence that I'm worshiping God. Do we have genuine sorrow for our sin? Not a man-pleasing kind of sorrow for sin, where I just don't want to get caught, but no, a genuine sorrow that our sin is wrong in the sight of God, and we hate it because He hates it. Do we prioritize the bride of the Lamb? Do we love His church? There are more, but just maybe take a moment this morning to ask the question, am I worshiping God right now? Am I loving Him? Am I pursuing Him?
because this revelation is the very word of God. It is faithful and true. And woe to the one who ignores it. Watch verse 10 as he continues on here at the end of the book. The angel speaks to John in verse 10. Then he said to me, John writes, right? Then he said to me, don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. Let the unrighteous go on in unrighteousness. Let the filthy still be filthy. Let the righteous go on in righteousness. Let the holy still be holy. If we pause just right there, the angel says to John, this is for everybody. Post it on the internet. Okay, that's what, that's what uh, don't seal up the words of this prophecy means. Okay, it means spread the word. It means read it. Don't hide from it. And, and just as a side note here, this, of course, in Daniel chapter 12, Daniel's told to seal up the words of his prophecy, which is like, it's not time yet for a lot of this, so hold on to it, and, and God's people will need it later. Here it's the opposite. Listen, don't seal this thing up. Make sure it gets to everybody because everybody needs to know. And I just think it's unfortunate that a book like Revelation, uh, maybe because of like, you know, intimidation over the eschatology or maybe just laziness or whatever, sometimes we just avoid this book. But this book is literally gifted to us, as the angel says here, it's gifted for our benefit. So don't seal it up because the time is near. People need to know that Jesus is coming back and that means woe to those who worship the beast and it means the vindication of the church. So let's not fear this book, right? Let's, it, there's not, we don't have all the answers about it, but we know enough to get the message. Notice though in verse 11, he kind of gives this, this takeaway in light of the, the urgency of the time being near. So the time is near. So let the unrighteous go on in unrighteousness. Let the filthy still be filthy. Now, I know you didn't expect to hear that on a Sunday morning. Let the unrighteous go on in unrighteousness. Let the filthy still be filthy. What is this all about? Well, it's actually kind of this moment where John says, to those who would claim to be followers of Jesus, he says, listen, If you're the real deal, you're the real deal. But you need to decide today. You need to choose where you stand. And if you're choosing unrighteousness, if you're choosing to worship the beast, then you just worship the beast. That's where you go. And you know what's coming because I've given you the vision. But if that's your choice, then go. But the righteous, let the righteous go on in righteousness. Let the holy still be holy. Even if there's consequences in my job, yes, Even if it makes the family gathering for the holidays awkward, yes. Even if it means that I I speak in different ways and thus I out myself to my coworkers as a Christian, yes. Let the righteous still be righteous. You know, choose where you stand because the time is near. You know, this whole section, I think verses 10 and 11, especially 11, right? This whole section really kind of focuses on a satanic strategy where Satan tries to just delay the urgency of following Jesus. Where he tries to convince us that, you know what, there's no urgency about getting serious about your faith of the Lord. Just, you can get to it in another phase of life. Are you familiar with that strategy? Here, in Revelation chapter 22, verses 10 and 11, we learn very clearly the time is near. Choose where you stand. If you're going to be unrighteous, fine, Go. But even in that statement, isn't there a call where John's like, don't be that guy. Don't go that way. 
But if you're sitting in the church and you're claiming to be a follower of Jesus and you know that you're filthy and you're participating in sin and you're not repenting of it and it's the mark of your life and you're not a genuine follower of Jesus, this is a warning. If you're going to do that, then go. Then go. The end is near, but it is delayed. And so we have to beware of Satan's delay tactic. This applies to us in every phase of life. And maybe we can just think through some of that different kind of application based on our, our life situation. We're blessed with so many generations gathered together for worship. This is how it should be, right? As my pops would say, you've got to have babies and gray hair for it to be a church. That's, uh, that's how it's supposed to be. But let's just maybe think about it first for the young people, the children especially. If there are children here this morning, can I just encourage you? The picture in the scriptures is very clear. Come to Jesus when you're young. Jesus, as he embraced the children in his first advent, and he told the disciples, whatever you do, don't prevent these little guys from coming to me. Little guys, come to Jesus. Memorize his word. Sing about his goodness. You're not too young to love Jesus. Young adults, can I encourage you to choose Christ early in your life? As you grow up and as you become an adult, especially through those teenage years, you need to be careful of temptation, especially in our culture, which is going to tell you that you decide what's important for you. Can I just encourage you that God knows much better for you than you do for yourself? There are going to be days when all your friends are doing something else, they're doing something that you know is wrong, and you're going to have to decide, am I going to go with the unrighteous or am I going to go with the righteous? Can I just encourage you to choose Christ early? It's okay to be weird like that. College students, can I encourage you this morning to engage your studies with a Christian worldview? To beware the temptation to make your life all about sex or drugs or alcohol, partying, whatever. To understand that there's more to life than seeking those fleeting pleasures, especially in sinful ways. So yeah, engage those studies, but do so with a rock-solid Christian worldview, evaluating all of what you're studying through the lens of God's Word. Singles, be careful that career doesn't box out Christ in your heart. Beware that the pursuit of romance doesn't box out Christ in your heart. Take advantage of your singleness and use it. Your days may be numbered. Use them for God's glory. Moms, don't let exhaustion or fear prevent you from pursuing Christ. It's hard. I know that the laundry never stops and the dishes seem always to be dirty. And you clean up one mess only to find another around the corner. And I know you stay up late to get all that work done and you get up early to try to beat the rush and to get the kids off to school or whatever, but don't let exhaustion or fear prevent you from pursuing Christ. Dads, don't be spiritually silent. Don't be busy at work and busy with the yard and busy with the house and busy with football, and busy with the World Cup, and never speak to your family about what matters most. The time is near. Choose where you stand. And seasoned saints, you see how I did that with respect? Seasoned saints. 
Don't waste your sunset years. Don't waste them with an inordinate focus on self. Don't follow the worldly example of claiming the right to be cranky. Invest your time and energy in your family and in the church. Because the time is near. And you got to choose where you stand today. Because the calling is clear. The unrighteous are going to be unrighteous. And there may be an indication, by the way, in verse 11, that the unrighteous will be unrighteous for eternity. Because they reject Christ. And we have no reason to believe that they would change their tune after their death upon their resurrection. They'll be judged forever in the lake of fire. So let the unrighteous be unrighteous. But let the righteous be righteous. I mean, listen, the calling is an urgent call to evaluate who do I really belong to? Where do I stand? And this calling is rooted actually in the gospel itself, in Jesus himself and what he's done for us in redemption. Watch verse 12 as we continue on here, this this concluding section. Jesus speaks again in verse 12 and he says, Look, I am coming soon. Second time we've had that. Jesus says, I am coming soon and my reward is with me to repay each person according to his work. You just got to know here, again, Satan's going to whisper, get to it later. You, you can always get serious about your walk with the Lord later. Jesus says, no, no, no. The time to get serious about me is now because what comes later is the reward. That's the reward. I'm coming soon. I bring reward. Now's not the time for reward and comfort and ease, okay? What you got to do is you got to follow me now. Yes, there are small pleasures in following Christ today, but there's also significant hardship. So we look forward to Jesus bringing his blessings. And Jesus is quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 10 here, and he uses that, that, uh, that reward language, right? The fulfillment of God's promises made to us in the Old Testament all come through Christ. So we look forward to that. But watch verse 13. He says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus calls us to choose where we stand. He calls us, says the time is near. Okay, follow me today, right now. And again, he anchors that in the revelation of his character. He is the sovereign one. Now you might, if you read Revelation carefully, you might notice that we've had that statement, I am the Alpha and Omega already. But it's said said that the Lord God is the Alpha and Omega. And so here you have one of the most clear indicators in the book of Revelation, not only between the shared throne, but you have another clear indicator of the deity of Jesus. Which is it? Is the Lord God the Alpha and Omega or is Jesus the Alpha and Omega? Yes. Father, Son, and Spirit. Sovereign over all of time. That's the emphasis here. So Jesus says it all belongs to me. So you know what? Live, Live in light of that right now. You can trust me in my sovereign reign over all of time. And he actually comes right to that point in verse 14. He says, blessed are those. This is, the, this is the seventh and last blessing in Revelation. Blessed are those who wash their robes. Now we've already had this described in the book of Revelation in chapter 14 where we wash our robes in the blood of the Lamb. And this is talking about what happens when you put your faith in Jesus. When you put your faith in Jesus, you are washed clean by his sacrificial death and resurrection. But note just the grammar here in verse 14. In the CSB, it says, Blessed are those who wash their robes. This is actually a present participle. It's something that you continue to do, is the idea. It's not just a one-time thing. Yes, you trust in Christ, but you continue to trust in Christ. As long as it's called today, you wash your robe. That's the idea. Washing the robe means I'm, I'm leveraging my life on my faith in Christ. 
I'm living in a distinct way. Some commentators think the focus here is exclusively on living a pure life. I think that's a part of it, but that's a result of being washed by the blood of the Lamb. So because we've trusted in Christ, now we live this new life. And don't you see the gospel on that, by the way? It's so clear. I mean, it's so important that we're clear on it, that the message of Revelation is not clean up your act, then you'll get the reward, you'll earn it. The message of Revelation is if you've washed yourself in the blood of the Lamb, you'll get the reward. He's done the work. But now, now it's time to follow. Now it's time to obey. So wash your robes. So verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. Your right as a citizen of the new Jerusalem is anchored not to your obedience, it's anchored to your faith in Jesus. Have you washed your robes, right? But that reality, washing your robes, is not a once and done situation. It's like, yes, I've trusted in Jesus and now I will continue to trust in Jesus. It doesn't mean that saints won't persevere. All true saints will persevere. But, you know, the point of the vision is, what about today? You know, often I'll, I'll talk to people and I'll say to them, you know, we'll talk about their faith in Jesus. And I'll talk about, well, how, you know, what, how do you know that you stand forgiven in the sight of God? And they'll say, well, I prayed a prayer when I was five years old. And I say, well, that's awesome. Praise God for your parents. Again, children, come to Jesus. Absolutely. But if there's no evidence of you washing your robes, except for when you were five years old, you might be in trouble, right? You, you might be in trouble if you say, that's, I can, well, how do I know I'm a Christian? Well, I go all the way back. Now, listen, I pray to God that we all have a legacy of faith and leave that in our families where our young people have come to Jesus at a young age. But that can't be the only evidence that you've washed your robes. If that's all there is, you might need to ask the question, Am I actually a Christian? The time is near. Wash your robes. Because, watch verse 15. Only those who've washed their robes, they're they're in, right? But verse 15. Outside are the dogs. Now, we got to talk about that for a second, okay? Some of us are dog people, okay? (laughs) Praise the Lord. We're a dog family. Yeah, it's a thing. Uh, there really weren't dog people in the first century, okay? So could we say it's not biblical to be a dog person? Maybe. I don't know. We'll think about that another time. But the first century imagery is clear. Dogs were not like pets. They were viewed as like scavengers, kind of like they were a threat perhaps. They were outside the city. You didn't let them get in because they would just ruin the place. And some of you are going, no kidding. And, you know, so like that, that's, that's the deal. So when he says outside of the dogs, dogs here is a pejorative term. And, it, you know, it's, it, we just got to, it is what it is. It's a pejorative term to talk about unbelievers. And it says they don't belong. They're not in. So outside of the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. That's a, not necessarily a new list in Revelation. We've had a few of these reminders, but what's the point? Well, the point is there are people in the church who claim to be followers of Jesus who are dogs, who are idolaters, who are participating in the worship of the, of the gods of the world and sorcery, whatever, uh, murderers, co- tolerating hatred in their hearts, and they love and practice falsehood. They're playing games and manipulating and deceiving and lying. And John says, listen, just so we're all clear, those people are out. They're not in. 
It doesn't matter how good your church attendance is. It doesn't matter how, how, how many verses you have memorized. It doesn't matter um, how many mission trips you've been on or how much money you've given to the sake, uh, for the sake of the gospel. If, if you are a hypocrite and you claim the name of Jesus, but your life is primarily characterized by the pursuit of sin and idolatry, you need to question whether or not you belong in the New Jerusalem. And there's an urgency to that, right? There's an urgency to that question. The time is near, wash your robes. The time is near, wash your robes. There are two applications of this. The first, of course, is to those who are not believers. And in this warning and in this call, blessed are those who wash their robes, there's a call of the gospel. That if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, he has made a way for you to be washed clean. Because he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he died for your sins and he rose from the dead and his offer stands. He says, repent of your sins and trust in me. So you have the opportunity today to be clean. And to instead of being an idolater, instead of being uh, you know, a, a murderer or a hater of others, instead of being uh, sexually immoral, instead of being a dog, you can be welcomed as a citizen of heaven. You can be made part of the family of God. That offer stands today. It will not stand forever, but it stands today. So there's an opportunity for you to come home. This also, of course, applies in the realm of sanctification of believers. There is a reward for believers that's coming. So the question is, hold on a second. Am I destined for that reward? Or am I living a lie? Simply going through the motions on a Sunday morning, pretending, but not really worshiping. The proof is in the pudding. Maybe you see it in your attitude at work. Maybe you see it in the things that you run to on the weekend, your Friday nights. You see it in the things that you get worked up about. You see it in sinful behaviors. And you know what? You're okay with your sin. You don't think it's that big of a deal. This is a warning to you. And let's not forget, this is not just a revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's where it ends. Watch verse 16. Jesus speaks again, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest these things to you for the churches. Can I just encourage you? Revelation is for you and for me, right? Jesus gives John this vision for the benefit of the churches. He says, I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus lays hold to this Old Testament imagery, the root and descendant of David. 2 Samuel 7, God promises David that one of his descendants will reign forever. That promise, we call that the Davidic covenant, right? That promise that God made to David is fulfilled in Jesus, his descendant, who will reign forever. Jesus is known as the son of David. More on that next week at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. So Jesus lays claim to that terminology. He says, I'm the root of David. And there's probably a reference to Isaiah chapter 11 where he's, he's talked about, the Messiah is talked about as the root of Jesse, the one who comes through that line of Jesse through David, 
Jesse, of course, is David's father. So you have this, this, this laying claim to this Old Testament terminology. Jesus says, I'm the bright morning star, which may be a reference to Numbers 24 and the prophecy that the Messiah will be the bright morning star, the morning star being the brightest star in the morning, probably Venus. We don't know for sure what, which star exactly they're talking about, but the idea is clear that all people can see it. This is a reference to the fact that Jesus is the Savior for all of the world, not just the people of Israel. And so here, Jesus lays claim to all that. He says, that's me. I'm it, Jesus says. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one promised. I am that, that descendant of David. I am the bright morning star. It's in me that your hopes lie. And so you need to know when push comes to shove and it gets really hard to follow me, as it had gotten hard for John, as it would have been hard for so many that read his book in the first century, Jesus says, at the end of the day, you focus on me. You look at me. The time is near. Remember that I am the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Remember that I am that bright morning star. And so there's agreement between the Spirit of God, between the Son of God, between God the Father, and between the church in the urgency and the need for Christ to return. And so that's where we get this focus in verse 17. Both the Spirit, it's probably John writing there in verse 17, both the Spirit and the bride say, come. Just hold on before we move past that. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. It it is better for Christ to return. (laughs) So come. Jesus, come, return. Verse 17, he goes on. Let anyone who hears say, come. If you hear the words of this book and you're responding, the right response is to say, yes, come, Lord Jesus. Come. It is right and good for you to come and to take your place as king over all kings and lord over all lords. Come and judge the wicked. Come, redeem your bride. Yes, come. But also there's an opportunity in this call. Watch again, verse 17. Let the one who is thirsty come. You know, it's almost like John can't, he's he's saying, yes, we're set apart for the second coming. Yes, the time is near. The time is near. Worship God. The time is near. Choose where you stand. The time is near. Wash your robe. But just, if you're still struggling out there, just know that that you can come. Now he's coming, but there's still time for you to come. So let the thirsty come and let the one who desires take the water of life freely. Picking up on imagery from Jeremiah 2 and the Gospel of John, chapter 4. I mean, it's just, it's just beautiful, the grace of God. Where even with this urgency and even with the warning, he says, but you know what? If you're thirsty and you want to be satisfied... Just come. Verse 18, John adds his his validation of the message. He says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life and the holy city, which are written about in this book. This section is, it actually comes from Deuteronomy, okay? And it's, it's a similar line as used in Deuteronomy. But the idea is that you're not supposed to edit the Word of God. You're supposed to respond rightly to the Word of God. So you don't, you don't add to it. And certainly it's in God's providence that this occurs in the last page of your Bible. So, yeah, let's just call it there, right? So don't add to it. But you know what? Also, don't take away from it. And just in our culture, man... The individualism of our culture is pushing people to say, you know what, there are massive chunks of the Bible that we can just ignore, or we can rewrite. 
And there's a warning here. You, you just got to be careful of that. Because if you're in the business of editing the word of God, then probably you're not a citizen of the New Jerusalem. And you will experience the plagues of this book rather than being protected from them. Verse 20, he who testifies about these things says, yes, I am coming soon. There's your third time. Jesus says, I am coming soon. John says, amen, come Lord Jesus. And then with the final word of benediction, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with everyone, amen. Let me encourage you this morning. The time is near, which means the time is now. Hear me rightly. The time is near, so the time is now. Jesus says, I'm coming soon. Pastor Ryan, when is he coming? I don't know. No one knows. If they say that they know, they don't know. Okay? So you can correct them on that. But if someone says, when is Jesus coming? The biblical answer is, soon. The time is near. Which means, the time is now. Today's the day when you need to decide if you're going to follow him or not. Today's the day when it's urgent to worship Jesus. Today's the day when it's time to take care of that struggle that you know you have, to bring it before the Lord, and to get it right. Let's go. I mean, that's kind of the urgency here at the end of the book. Jesus affirms and underlines, I'm coming soon, I'm coming soon, I'm coming soon. The time is near, the time is year. So the time to follow him is not tomorrow. The time to follow him is now. This is the day. It's not a unique message in the Bible. We find consistency as we read the rest of the scripture that there's an urgency to our response to the gospel. And maybe you're here this morning and you're struggling with your spiritual growth. Can I just encourage you that if you defer dealing with that issue of your spiritual health, it will only harm you. The time is near. He's coming soon, which means the time is now. What has Jesus called us to do in Revelation? Let me just remind you. In chapter 2, verse 25, he called us to hold fast to what you have, meaning the gospel. In chapter 3, verse 2, he commands us to wake up, to put our energy and effort into our spiritual health and to be spiritually vigilant. In chapter 3, verse 19, he calls us to be zealous and repent, to be passionate for pursuing the Lord and to repent of our sin whenever we see it in our lives. He's called us in verse 22 of chapter 3 to submit to the word of God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. To submit to God's word and to to follow in obedience. In chapter 14, verse 7, we're called to fear God and give him glory. In chapter 18, verse 4, we're called to come out of Babylon, to be set apart, to be different than the world. In chapter 19, verse 10, in chapter 22, verse 9, we're called to worship God, as we've discussed this morning. Here in chapter 22, verse 17, we're called to be satisfied in Christ, to come, if you're thirsty, come and drink. And here in chapter 22, we're called to watch out for hypocrisy. All of those commands, all of those concerns, they're not for tomorrow, they're for today. They're for right now. But I want to leave you with the same of encouragement that John leaves us with in verse 21 where he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with everyone. Amen. It is the revelation of Jesus, which means if you're hearing the message, if if you're reading Revelation and you're convicted of your sin, that's good. But don't let the takeaway be, I just need to try harder, right? Let the takeaway be, I need to look to Christ and follow him, right? 
So it's not just, oh, I need to clean up my act so that maybe I get in at the end, right? No, the question is, if I belong to Jesus and I've trusted in Christ, then let me follow him, right? So it's not about I earn my salvation. It's not about I warrant my forgiveness. No, it's that he has done that work. He's earned salvation. He's warranted my forgiveness. Maybe the best thing to do if you're discouraged is to look to Christ, You know who Jesus is in Revelation? He's the faithful witness in chapter 1, verse 5. The firstborn from the dead, 1, 5. The ruler of the kings of the earth, 1, 5. The one who loves us and has freed us from sins by his blood. Chapter 1, verse 5. He's the lion of Judah, chapter 5, verse 5. He's the lamb who was slain, chapter 5, verse 6. He's... The one, the only one worthy to open the scrolls in chapter 5, verse 12. He's the victorious lamb in chapter 14 and chapter 17. He's the shepherd of his sheep in chapter 7. He's the king over all kings and lord over all lords in chapter 17. He's the bridegroom of the church in chapter 19 and 21. He's the light of the world in chapter 21. He's the judge of the world in chapter 22. He's the sovereign Lord over all of creation in chapter 22 and chapter 1. He's the word of God in chapter 22. He's the root of David. He's the bright morning star. He's the Messiah for Israel and for the nations here in chapter 22. And brothers and sisters, he is coming soon. The time is near, which means the time to follow him is now. Would you please pray with me and we'll ask him to help us to follow him. Lord, we thank you so much for the book of Revelation. Lord, we thank you for the clear message that This vision is given to us not to satisfy curiosity, not to set dates or to monitor headlines, but Lord, this vision is given to us to foster faith in you right now, to help your church follow you and persevere in faith, especially when it's difficult. Lord, I I pray for those in our church body who are facing significant challenges this morning, financial trials, Lord, emotional challenges, physical difficulties, Lord, different degrees of persecution, awkwardness with coworkers, with classmates, Lord, neighbors, family, whatever it might be. Lord, we ask that you would help us to follow you. We pray that we would be set apart for the second coming, that we would live in light of your imminent return. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come quickly. But Lord, as you tarry, may you find your bride faithful. Lord, there are so many days that we struggle with discouragement. Maybe it's over our own sins and failures. Maybe others have sinned against us. Maybe we're just weary because of general circumstances of difficulty in the world. Lord, we ask that you would motivate us today. Make us passionate for you. Help us to see that the time is near and therefore the time is now. And Lord, I do pray for those who have never trusted in you. Maybe those who are living a lie, pretending to be a Christian when they know that they are not. Lord, I pray that they would see the urgency to repent of their sin and to turn to you today. Lord, we thank you that your grace is available to us even now. Lord, may your grace be with everyone, we pray. We pray these things, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.